This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by Life Sport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, Life Sport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider Life Sport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps, and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at lifesportcoaching.com. Hello, and welcome to the July 1st, 2022 Canada Day edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. This past weekend saw a lot of great racing around the globe, but one race that I took notice of was in my old home province of Quebec at Lac Mont-Tremblant. The 70.3 race there is a wildly popular affair, and for good reason. The swim is in a gorgeous mountain setting, the bike is challenging but fair, and quite pretty as it winds through the northern Laurentians, and then the run along the lake is very beautiful and ends with a somewhat nasty climb before descending to a really spectacular finish in Mont-Tremblant village. There was a great profile on hand for the race, as always, including several Canadians. Cody Beals, Brent McMahon, and Lionel Sanders were all there, and all did very well. Sanders won the race, which in itself is not terribly surprising, but if you saw the live stream or followed any social media coming out at the time, you know that it wasn't a completely straightforward affair. Coming out of T1, about a minute and a half back of the leaders, Lionel had a flat in his front wheel. Now, mechanicals and especially flat tires are commonplace amongst age groupers, and all of us carry the tools to be able to make a change as quickly as possible and move on. For the pros, though, it can be a different story. Many are using tubeless setups, and those can make flat changes a lengthy and kind of messy job. Also, they often don't carry flat kits in order to save weight and space, so a flat can cost significant amounts of time, and often, if a pro thinks it isn't worth it, they might just call it a day. Watching Lionel work through the flat, you can see that he was encountering some issues right away. He clearly didn't have a flat kit, and he was struggling to get the tire off the rim and was looking around for help. But all the while, you could see with 100% certainty that all of this was being done without any sense of panic or alarm. He was composed and methodical and focused only on solving the problem at hand. A support motorcycle pulled up, and you could see Lionel make the snap decision that it would be quicker for him to just swap wheels. Any aero disadvantage by taking this shallow rim wheel that the motorcycle support had over his deep dish aero wheel would be negated by further fiddling around trying to fix the flat. The wheel change was made quickly, and he was on his way. By the 7km split for the bike, Lionel had lost just over 2 minutes because of all of this. At the 33-kilometer split, he'd erased that completely, and by the 66-kilometer split was in the lead by about a minute and a half, and that was a lead he would never relinquish. I think that we can all learn from this episode. Things don't always go according to how we plan them during a race. By rehearsing for likely eventualities and being prepared for them, you can ensure that you won't get flustered if they arise. Keeping a cool head is super important to being able to problem-solve in the moment. So slow down, keep your breathing under control, and don't rush. Instead, take your time and be sure that you do everything you need to correctly correctly evaluate all options well before making a decision on how then to proceed. Finally, once you resume your race, 
Don't try to erase what happened. What's done is done and can only be made worse if you then blow yourself up in a futile attempt to get back the time that you lost. Instead, put the problem behind you and continue executing your race plan as if nothing had happened. This really is the surest way to recover and find success. On the show today, I'm going to look at yet another device being marketed at endurance athletes that promises improvements in performance and physiological parameters, all by virtue of putting a piece of plastic in your mouth. The Airwave is a mouth appliance that promises to alter the oral cavity so long as it is in place, allowing for easier breathing and improved oxygen delivery to the lungs. Well, how does it work, and is there science to support the claims? I take a look, coming up in a short bit. Later, because it's Canada Day, I'm joined by a Canadian endurance athlete. Jordan Bryden is the current world champion of the Ultraman, a three-day event that encompasses a 10k open water swim, a 260-plus mile bike over two days, and a 50-mile, sorry, a 50-plus mile run on the third day. But he's so much more than just an Ultraman athlete. He's also a professional triathlete with wins at the 70.3 distance and significant accomplishments in Ironman. And he's also an exceptional photographer. Well, he joins me to talk about all of that just a little bit later on. Now, normally, this is the part in the introduction when I would tell you about the opportunity to get involved in this podcast as a Patreon supporter. And I do want to be sure that you all know about that. But for this episode, I instead have to spend a brief moment telling you some other important news instead. Over the past two years, I have had the great pleasure of working with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh, who has been an incredible help to me in preparing the medical segments that are a big part of every program. Well, as I always knew would happen when she first joined me as a professional triathlete and coach and then my intern, Maddie is now moving on from her career in the sport to take on the next challenge in her life. Starting this August, Maddie will begin studying medicine at the University of Minnesota, beginning her way to what I know will be an amazing career as a physician. And I wanted to take a few moments now to thank her for all of her help in making this program as good as it has become and to wish her well in her future endeavors. Over the two years that we have worked together, we've become friends, and I look forward to watching her progress from afar. Thank you again, Maddie. I've really appreciated all of your help. Fortunately, in leaving, Maddie has not left me empty-handed. In one of her final acts of service to the podcast, she helped me find two stellar young replacements to succeed her. Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson are unrelated, despite sharing the same surname and both swimming for Maddie's alma mater, Grinnell College. I'm going to take a little time to introduce them to you before the next episode of the podcast. For now, though, stay tuned as we get into the meat of the episode and begin first with a look at the airwave Oral appliance. Over the time that I've been doing this podcast, I've reviewed all manner of products that are marketed to triathletes as having some pretty remarkable benefits. As you know, in almost all cases, these benefits are generally overblown or easily disproven, but that unfortunately never stops companies from bringing new things to market with more and more outlandish claims. While I always knew that I would spend a lot of time discussing things that you put in your mouth, I always thought that this was because many of the things that I would be asked to look into would be nutritional in nature. What I didn't know, and what has frankly been a little bit surprising to me, is how many devices I have found that also go in your mouth. The Aerofit and GO2 were two such devices. Both were mouth guard types of things that were purported to affect how an athlete breathes and thereby impact performance. 
Of course, neither does anything close to what they claim to, though both are very much still around and continue to push their somewhat embellished claims. Well, on this episode of the podcast, I'm going to look at yet another oral appliance. That is, another plastic device that you put in your mouth that ostensibly affects how an athlete breathes and then impacts athletic performance. The Airwave, spelled A-I-R-W-A-A-V, is another plastic mouthguard type of apparatus that an athlete places in their mouth and, in so doing, causes their jaws to subtly change alignment and pushes the tongue forward. These subtle anatomic changes improve the patency of the airway and then, theoretically at least, improve respiration. The makers of the airwave claim that the downstream effects of using this device are significant, though on their website they are very careful to avoid making overly broad claims. Instead, the airwave site relies pretty much exclusively on anecdotes and testimonials. For example, there's a quote on the main page from a cyclist who claims that using the device allowed him to increase his FTP by, quote, 20 watts seemingly overnight, end quote. Another page is dedicated to blog posts, each one devoted to a different athlete who has used the device and reports, well, similarly remarkable results. Now, you know how I feel about these kinds of one-off reports by athletes who are almost certainly compensated by the maker of the device to provide these kinds of stories. It's all fine and dandy if an individual gets a benefit from a product, but when reported in this way, I'm basically forced to take them at their word, have no independent corroboration of what they are saying, and I have no idea whether or not the device itself caused their benefit or if anything else they might have changed played a role. Furthermore, even if the device helped this particular person, how do I know that means it's going to help me? How many anecdotes are there from people who didn't get benefits? Uh, We're never going to see those published, do we? Anyways, the point is, anecdotes are nice, but they are nothing more than catchy one-liners and should never be taken as giving any insight to what the actual story is about whether or not a product does what they claim it does. For that, we need to look for the science, and to Airwave's credit, they list a fair amount of it on their site. I attribute this really to one thing and one thing only. Much of the research on the device was done by a particular researcher by the name of Dr. Dina Garner, a PhD and the assistant provo for research at the Citadel in South Carolina. Well, it turns out that Dr. Garner is the mind behind the Airwave, and from what I can tell, this is actually her company. This doesn't mean that the research that we're about to review is not valid, but it does mean we need to be a little bit careful in how we assess it, because clearly Dr. Garner was conducting her research to determine if the oral appliance could provide any physiologic or performance benefits to athletes. Well, when she was doing that, she was also looking for a proof of concept for something that she hoped to bring to market. So the potential for bias in her findings was obviously going to be there and was going to be very real. Still, after looking at her published research, I have to say that the papers that we found by her on this device were actually pretty reasonable, and their conclusions much more in keeping with the actual findings within those studies than the website designers which have you believe. That is to say, the website tends to kind of overstate the potential benefits of the airwave that Dr. Garner's research demonstrated. So what were her findings? Let's begin with some of the earlier studies that were done to establish how the mouthpiece might work. The theory behind the airwave is that by putting it in your mouth, it alters the anatomy very subtly and increases the, ima- the, increases the size of the airway, making it easier to breathe. 
When imaging the airway of athletes who use the device, this change can be seen to be actually pretty dramatic, with increases as much as 25%. But, I caution, although they advertise this 25% on the website, this is clearly an extreme amount. The average amount, as reported in Dr. Garner's research, is closer to 9%. Nonetheless, the researchers have long theorized that this improvement in airway patency would result in better breathing mechanics, lower exercise stress, and that this in turn would translate to improved athlete performance. In 2011, Dr. Garner published two studies to try and evaluate this. In the first, she looked at cortisol levels in the saliva of football players and found that in those who used the mouthpiece, cortisol levels were statistically significantly lower than in athletes who were not using one. She concluded from this that athletes using the device were therefore less stressed, since cortisol is a marker of stress, and that because of this, they should perform better, though the study didn't actually assess performance. Now, there are a couple of problems with this conclusion. First, there's not really great data that show that lower cortisol levels do translate to improved performance, or that higher cortisol levels are somehow bad. Second, animal studies have shown that the simple act of biting down on something can actually affect cortisol rates. So the question becomes, is it the respiratory changes affected by the airwave that's responsible for the impact on cortisol levels, or alternatively, is it just a question of chewing on the thing? A second study from 2011 assessed some other physiologic variables in response to using an oral appliance like the airwave. In this study, the researchers evaluated various respiratory metrics, such as respiratory rate, breath volumes, VO2 max, and exhaled carbon dioxide, and found that the use of the mouthpiece did result in some improvement in VO2 and exhaled carbon dioxide, but that all other metrics remained the same when athletes performed a short and, honestly, fairly easy treadmill test. Now, there was a lot of hand-waving in the interpretation of these results because even the authors themselves were unable to really well explain their findings adequately. So knowing what this means to an athlete's ability to perform remains kind of uncertain. Nonetheless, the researchers were encouraged and continued their experiments. In 2016, Dr. Garner published a review article on these kinds of oral appliances in which she summarized the current state of knowledge at that time. Given that she would later be bringing these devices to market, I was surprised to read that in this paper she wrote in the conclusion that the benefits of these devices are typically minimal, measured in the range of 3 to 10%. Two years later, she wrote another review in which she went even further, writing, quote, A current difficulty in mouthpiece research is determining whether it offers a meaningful benefit to someone who is exercising, given that the improvements to physiological aspects of athletes are small, end quote. Then, in 2019, another study looking at athletes on a treadmill and assessing how the mouthpiece impacts respiratory mechanics. In this study, athletes ran for 10 minutes, during which those with the mouthpiece did have lower respiratory rates and carbon dioxide levels, at least for the initial 7 minutes of the test. But in the last 3 minutes, the difference narrowed to where there was no longer statistical significance. And again, there was no assessment of performance. Now, this is Kind of hard to know what to do with this study. It's only a 10-minute treadmill test, and any actual differences that we saw were gone by the end of the 10 minutes. So what does this actually mean? Does the mouthpiece give any benefits beyond that 10 minutes, or is it really uh, only important in the initial phase? We're not quite sure. 
So essentially, with the small amount of research done in this area, the results are pretty limited in scope and honestly not that earth-shattering. Essentially, athletes who use one of these devices can expect to see lower levels of cortisol and at least initially lower respiratory rates during exertion, although this benefit looks like it disappears pretty quickly. Now, whether or not any of this translates to an actual performance benefit is still very much unknown, despite what the website would have you believe. There are a couple of other considerations that triathletes specifically need to keep in mind for deciding on a device like the Airwave. I wonder, for example, whether or not this thing is safe to use during a swim. I fear that because of the way it kind of forces the mouth to stay open, it could cause problems. A second concern relates to nutrition. Because the airwave only works if it's placed in the mouth properly, it makes it impossible to take in the nutrition when it's in place. And clearly this makes the device less than ideal for a longer distance race when nutrition is of vital importance. So at this point, it's far from clear to me that the airwave offers anything of value to triathletes, even though it's being marketed to them. The research is very underwhelming, and aside from anecdotes, there's really no evidence of performance improvement at all. Given the issues that I just mentioned with respect to the swim and nutrition, I think it makes it a pretty easy decision at this point to leave the fancy mouth guards to the athletes in sports who really need them, like rugby, Aussie rules football, and of course, competitive horsing around with my kids. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send it to me in an email so I can consider it. You can reach me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Alternatively, you can reach me on Facebook, where we have an all-new private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group. Answer a couple of really easy questions, I'll grant you access, and you can join the conversation and submit questions there. My guest today is Jordan Bryden. Jordan is a professional triathlete from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Jordan was first introduced to the sport of triathlon at the age of nine. When his dad was looking to buy a treadmill, they wandered into the Calgary Cycle Path bike store. The store owner just explained what a triathlon was and helped get him set up for his first Kids of Steel race two months later. By the time Jordan was 12, he was inspired by fellow Canadian Simon Whitfield, the first ever Olympic champion in the sport of triathlon at the Sydney Olympic Games. Since then, Jordan has won numerous national titles, a junior world Xterra title, and has landed on the podium at Olympic distance and long distance triathlon events around the globe. In 2017, he was a member of the Canadian Long Course Triathlon Team and raced at the ITU Long Course World Championships. He also won his first ultra-distance triathlon at the, at the Canadian Ultraman Distance Event in Penticton. In 2019, Jordan became a member of the Boulder, Colorado-based JDC Pro Team, coached by Julie Dibbins, and he's had a successful return to elite racing after winning his first half Ironman after nearly 18 months. He went on to win Ultraman Canada with a record-breaking swim and day one record, placed third at the, Can- at the Canada Man X-Tri race, finished Ironman Barcelona in just over eight hours and 30 minutes, and then went on to win the 2019 Ultraman World Championships in Kona, among other podium results. Jordan Bryden, thank you so much for slowing down just a little bit to join me today on the Dry Dog Podcast. Yeah, great to see you, Jeff. We just saw each other yeah. not that long ago here, actually. <laughs> That's right. And we're going to talk a little bit about Jordan's other side gig coming up in a little bit. But Jordan and I got to spend some time in St. George when uh, he and I both were there for camps. He was there for the JDC camp. I was there for the Lifesport camp. And we uh, shared accommodations and got to know each other a little bit. And uh, that's where I had the opportunity to ask him to come on to the podcast. So I'm really glad that 
uh, we're getting to do that today. Yes, we bonded uh, over our love of coffee, didn't we? We did. <laughs> Utah, and they're not wanting, like, I mean, not drinking coffee. Uh, it's just a, a, an abomination to me. And thank goodness Jordan had, uh, what is that thing called? That that wonderful percolator? It's yeah, exactly. Name for it. It's called, we, yeah, I don't know, just, I think it's percolator. It's like the European style of coffee, right? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it made great coffee. It was awesome. Well, Jordan, you've had a, a really long career for a pretty young triathlete. And when you look back, I'm curious, what are some of the things that you kind of, think back on most fondly ah good question yeah no um you know a lot of the things that stick out aren't necessarily even my own performances but just being able to be involved in the success of others has definitely like been a uh, a keystone of my career it seems <laughs> um i was lucky to like you know work with brett sutton for a while and um in that two-year period i worked with nicholas spearing and daniela rife to get them ready for for races in a bit of a domestic capacity um and you know i did a, a big training camp with sarah crowley before she won the itu long course worlds and so that's kind of been um a great way to kind of stay motivated is by you know just like doing your own training and really working hard but also helping others kind of achieve their goals um so that's one thing the other is obviously um you know, those bigger races that you end up on the podium are always <laughs> are always the ones that stick out in your mind. My first junior national title, I felt, um, you know, I still reflect on as it being very special and like, you know, making a move with, with 5K to go on that, um, that run and knowing that I was going to win it for a good amount of time. You know, having that sort of confidence at a young age was uh, um, really motivating to keep going and keep finding new races. I think it's really interesting what you said about contributing to the success of others, because that is a recurring theme in your career. Uh, you mentioned several uh, professionals there, and I know I recently had a chance to talk to Didi Griesbauer, who was very complimentary to your um, efforts in her success at uh, the Ultraman that she participated in in Florida, I believe, where you were part of her crew. Yeah. Is I that correct? Yeah. Got to talk her through the ropes the whole time. And um, I felt um, extremely privileged that, like, you know, our coach Julie was there, and Julie definitely gave me the reins for um, a lot of the decision making just because I had a little bit of a unique experience having done those races before. So, um, but yeah, it's. Uh, it, it is very much uh, an individual sport. And when you have those opportunities to make it less individual, it, it's really rewarding. That's great. Well, you've mentioned several different distances and you've had success at all of them. You've had success at Olympic, you, you know, half Ironman distance, Ironman, Ultraman, uh, Xterra. Do you have a favorite? <laughs> yeah, the longer the better now. You know, I, I kind of started out, obviously, in the junior elite circuit um, in Canada and um, wound up, you know, racing on the World Cup circuit and that sort of thing. And at that point, I was, you know, I was about a 34-minute 10K off the bike. Um, I actually joined um, life sport coach Lance Watson for two years uh, and worked with Brent McMahon and um, Lance got me down to about a 31 40 10 K in the course of a year. And um, for a big six foot five guy, that was, that was pretty good, but it was never going to be enough to, you know, make it to an Olympics or uh, anything like that. So I just kind of really embraced the endurance side of things. And I, every, every time I go a little bit longer, I seem to want to find something longer than that. So <laughs> yeah, now I just and, love it. And what, what is it about the long distance stuff that really 
Yeah, I mean, besides the fact that you love endurance, what, what is it about those races that really draws you? Um, it's a very internal dialogue for me. You know, I'm definitely a bit ADT, and that has been something that when you're doing these shorter races, you're you're just on all the time, and your mind is going, and you're making these really complicated um, decisions in the race dynamic and in training. Um, but the that will affect the outcome drastically. So having that longer time period really just gets me to a piece uh, or a place where I have peace of mind during the event. And I feel like I just like, I can go all day in that state, you know, it's very, uh, (laughs) it's very calming. And I just really love the idea of getting out there and like, just trying to see how much you can hurt for how long. So. I think it's a little bit unusual to see an athlete have success across so many distances. You usually see people focus on, you know, short distance or really long distance, but, the, and, you know, there are people obviously that can succeed at half or full or sorry, half and full, but uh, you've been really good at all of them. And do you think there's any sort of key to that? Or is it just, you, you, you've found that when you focus on one, you do really well at that and then you're able to shift to the other. Yeah. I think it's been a, a progression for sure. You know, I've been in the sport, um, longer than most. Uh, I started when I was just nine years old and now I'm, you know, turning 36 this year. So there aren't that many other triathletes that hold a pro license, um, that have been competing for that long. So I've just really found that, you know, keeping it fresh has been part of that, you know, adjusting to a new difference or a new distance, um, and a different focus has been a, you know, an ability to learn in ways that, you know, you're always evolving and you know, always, always just excited for, you know, that idea of like trying to test yourself and be a little bit better. But, you know, to answer your questions a, a little bit more directly, I guess, um, I just have always loved to go fast. And, you know, as you get older and whatnot, you can't go fast anymore in the same capacity. So you may as well go long. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. Um, I want to spend some time talking about Ultraman because I'm fascinated by that. Um, what uh, kind of got you to even consider doing an Ultraman? First of all, we should define it. Yeah. What, what, <laughs> I, a lot of people probably don't know. What, what is an Ultraman? Yeah, Ultraman um, actually has been around almost as long as Ironman. And it was kind of born from the idea of racing all the way around Kona. So, you know, Ironman happened. And then a year or two later, people were like, yeah, but what if we went all the way around the island? So um, that was where the distances came from. Uh, day one is about a 10K swim and a uh, 160-ish K bike, depending on the year. The courses have changed due to lava flow a lot of the time. <laughs> um, day two, you have a very long ride that's, you know, north of, what is the actual distance? I couldn't even quote it to you. It feels like 300K. It's definitely over 280 <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it's 285 or yeah. 295. Or and then yeah. um, day three is your double marathon where you basically start at the bike turnaround um, for Ironman and you just run into town and you run all the way to the the old airport, which is just next to uh, the hotel. So that's a long run day for sure. <laughs> no kidding. So what kind of drew you to that? Um, originally, you know, I, I didn't know what it was until I was about... 16 or 17 and I was in Penticton doing a training camp and I heard of Kevin Cutjar who's a coach out in Penticton um he just actually won his age group on the weekend at Ironman St. George he's very phenomenal athlete um he was coaching um a few different pros at the time and still does and I just heard about this like this totally different 
idea of going longer. And I've always, you know, thought about doing like a 24 hour challenge type, see how far you can go thing. And this was kind of on that, on that spectrum. Um, when I first went and signed up for it, um, it was also because it was in Penticton and that's, you know, a place that I was kind of exposed to endurance sport and, uh, it seemed like a natural fit. And, uh, yeah, the rest is just like, you know, kind of just testing your body and your mind more than anything. So, so what is involved in training for that? I mean, I'm, I'm obviously familiar with Ironman training where you're training at certain intensities and training for certain distances, but Ultraman to me is, is I can't get my head wrapped around it. I've spoken to many people who train for ultra marathons and, you know, for them, it's all about just going very slow for very long times. And I'm just curious, what what does Ultraman training look like? Yeah, it's a a little bit different, you know, to kind of describe the race itself is, you know, the decisions that you're making in real time, you aren't thinking an hour ahead, you're thinking two days ahead at first, and you're just really making sure that, um, you know, if you are going to make a move, that's not going to drastically affect the outcome at the end of the second marathon. And, you know, that goes for the second bike day as well. If you're uh, responding to, you know, guys in the group that are trying to make uh, make decisive movements, you know, we have obviously the no drafting rule as well. But there's when, a, when you have a, a day that is that long, it's very easy to play off of um, other athletes' strengths and weaknesses. So you take that back to the training um, ideals. And I think, you know, taking your Ironman base training and then building on that um, from a strength perspective, because you need to be able to support your upright body weight for much, much longer. Um, So just like really spending time on your feet. Um, But also then, just relying on your strengths and not being able or not overdoing it in certain areas. Yeah. I grew up a competitive swimmer for almost 15 years and I don't actually do swim workouts over like six K usually, even though the swim is 10. And so that has been just a, a confidence aspect of things. I, you know, I did a lot of 10, 15 K swim workouts when I was a, a lot younger. So I, I kind of just rely on that um, and focus my attentions on my weaknesses, which, uh, you know, generally is coming around in that second marathon. So, so what does a week look like for, uh, and it doesn't have to be a week for you and maybe a, a week for a, a, you know, an age group ultraman triathlete. I mean, you know, if I, if an Ironman athlete is putting in 15 to 20 hours a week, what is an ultraman athlete putting in for training? Yeah. So I, um, I probably do it much different than an age grouper because I, train you know the majority of my year on a pro Ironman schedule you know I'm focused on that distance um, I only put in about eight weeks of really specific Ultraman training because obviously we do some long miles on the bike and whatnot for for Ironman um, that is much different than you know how I would coach someone for an Ultraman because it is a little bit of a, a different undertaking um, but I also think that it's not necessarily what people believe, or maybe it shouldn't be what people believe in terms of just going out there and pounding yourself into the ground for, for long periods of time. I think rather um, taking special note and putting careful attention on your ability to, like I said, stay upright. So like even just hiking is a really great Ultraman training activity. Um, I really like gravel biking. That's been become a huge part about my training because it has a strength component, but you can kind of get out there for these longer days where, um, 
you're less focused on a distance or a power output and you're just like really taking what the day gives you. So I, I like just like stretching those out as the season goes on and getting a little bit more comfortable with being uncomfortable on those distances. So it's kind of just simulation of time as opposed to simulation of distance and just getting used to being, you know, like you said, either upright or in the saddle for longer periods. Yeah. And, um, you know, like my, uh, I think I finished the double marathon around 720 in Kona. Um, I'd obviously trained to go a little bit faster than that, but you are making real time decisions in that race where you're justifying, okay, I'm going to run a little bit slower, but I need to stay within this bracket of time. Um, you know, on day two at worlds in 2019, um, Arnaud, there's a, a French athlete that was off the front and I was going back and forth with Rob Gray, who's, you know, very well respected two time, um, Ultraman world champion. So I made the decision at that point to ride harder, really compromise a bit of my running just to be in the game and to be able to play more head games come the run. And uh, it's interesting over those long, long days, these long, long distances, you are in touch with the other athletes. Like these gaps aren't huge. These gaps aren't like an hour. These gaps are actually minutes. Yeah, they definitely, uh, they definitely can be, you know, um, we on, uh, on that third day on the double marathon, I think we came through Waikoloa the exact, I, you have to do a stand down stop in Ultraman if there's ever red lights, et cetera. Um, and I had only, you know, a minute lead and the light didn't change. Rob came up right beside me, right as the light changes. So we were literally like side by side at the halfway point at that point. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, there's a difference between people who are entering Ultraman for the challenge and getting through a distance that would normally be unobtainable for them and racing it and trying to be strategic in the decisions that you make, Yeah, you know, to wind up on the podium. <laughs> and how many starters are, are there in one of these events usually? Yeah, that's a, that's one that surprised. That's a good question. Cause that surprises people. Most of the time, there's usually about 40 or 50 at the very most 50 is kind of the okay. max. The reason for that is uh, you have to get in by an application. Um, but when you have 50 cars on the side of the road and everyone has their individual crew and there's usually at least three crew members, sometimes I see like eight crew members for an athlete, which gets a little bit crazy. Um, so the permitting that's required for the races, you know, means that it has to be done in a very safe and efficient manner. And you just have to maintain um, an understanding of how many bodies are on the course. Uh, and the organizers also just want to pay special attention to like the medical needs of, of athletes that might, you know, have challenges during those races. And of those 50, how many will generally finish? Um, it's actually a fairly high finish rate. Generally you can tell after day one, if they're going to make it or not. Um, I actually coach an athlete now who did, two Ultramans in two weeks when we had a uh, Ultra 520 in Canada, a very similar race on a similar course in Penticton uh, the week after the actual official Ultraman Canada. Um, And it's very easy to see in those capacities if someone's going to make it or not. Uh, But, you know, there's some really unique challenges that do come up when it comes to this style of racing because, um, I've seen crew members that forget to like pack their, uh, their athletes bike shoes in the van. And then, <laughs> you know, the, the, there's very unique things that come along with not having, um, a regulated structure transition area, um, course layout, 
you know, a lot of times the roads are open. Um, so you, your crew is helping you navigate and do your directions and help with, you know, yeah. your structure of your race in general. So, And uh, of the 50, how many of them are generally there competing versus just sort of there to finish, well, in, uh, you know, on average? Yeah, I, I think that's a... I think everyone's competing with themselves to, to some degree, but yeah. I oh, would, absolutely. Yeah, I would absolutely. say that, like, yeah, you know, you got that that top twenty five percent that is more focused on their uh, finished position than they are about actually you know, just making sure that they get through that distance. Yeah, and then uh, is the World Championships? Do you have to qualify for that, or is that just an open race like all the others? Yeah, so you have to do an Ultraman, um, and one of the uh, official events. So that's Florida, Arizona, or Canada right now. Um, and then at that point, it's an application process, and they will vary who kind of gets in year to year. And you know, we look at the X Try events. I know you've done the Canadian X Try. The X Try events have almost become a victim of their own success. They've become wildly popular, very difficult to get into. Uh, some people have lamented uh, the explosion in their popularity because they've lost kind of their niche kind of sport kind of allure. Uh, it sounds based on what you're saying because there's only 50 uh, entrants to each of these races. I almost look at these Ultramans as almost like the Barkley Marathons of triathlon. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of seems like, you know, Didi was explaining to me how there's a group hug every morning before you guys start. <laughs> and it, it kind of sounds very, you know, folksy and, and, and communal. And it sounds like that's not going to happen. You're not going to see you know, it, 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 it couldn't really grow the same way that the X try events have grown simply because of the, the, the permitting issues and the fact that uh, it is such a, a big endeavor to undertake, I'm guessing. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, those who have been to an event are very shocked at just how welcoming everyone is. Uh, you know, the first, first races I've ever, I ever did, you know, I kind of walked in there with my typical, uh, game face that you would have going into an Ironman or whatnot and everyone's so excited you're there and willing to give you advice and these are the tricks to this course and like it's it's very much you versus the course at the end of the day more than it is you know you versus um, an individual athlete in a lot of respects I've done you know like you said a, a couple different extras and like I think that format is a great compromise between these two you know where you have the all branded always kind of like similar Ironman um, I think the Canada man X try race is probably the best race I've ever been to in my career. Um, they're so well organized. They really take care of everybody, even though they aren't, um, you know, they aren't a huge race and they aren't a tiny race either. I, I think it's, uh, you know, I, 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 it doesn't interest me only because, uh, it just seems daunting, and and I'm not sure I want to put myself through something like that. <laughs> but uh, everybody I know who's done them just raves about the experience. Uh, similar to how I'm not really interested in ultra marathons, uh, people who I know who do them just like they seem very addictive, and people just love them. So I, I have much respect for people who do them, and I totally understand the allure. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just think they're amazing. Uh, I want to uh, you know finish uh, just by talking for a few minutes about your other side gig, and it was something we alluded to early in the conversation and that is uh the you know the very nice kind of 
job that you've made for yourself as a sort of a social media guy, uh, not just for life sport, but for several pros, uh, anybody who follows, uh, um, Laura Siddle, for example, or, or several other pros, uh, w- will may- maybe not know that Jordan is, uh, the guy behind the, the photos and the videos that a lot of these pros are posting. So how, how did you come to become such an accomplished photographer and kind of get into that almost, uh, you know, low key Talbot Cox, uh, position? <laughs> yeah, no, I love, um, I grew up with a dad who was a photographer, um, so I always had a camera in my hand from the age of like eight, and that was uh, something that like was an outlet for me. But I took that, um, ended up working in graphic design just because I had an understanding of lines and light, and um, you know you can kind of take those principles and apply it to Lightroom just as much as you can to Photoshop. But um, I I really was passionate about. Um, that aspect early on in my life. And then I ended up going to uh, a various world cup events as an athlete where, you know, we weren't funded in any way in Canada. So you kind of always have to pick up the tab by yourself. And I would shoot photos of the women's race um, before, you know, getting my suit on and going into the men's race. So I, uh, I know when I did the London test event in 2012, I shot um, a finish line picture of Paula Finley winning the race about 18 minutes before I started my race. And then I was able to then, you know, sell those photos, pay for the flight. (laughs) (laughs) So I I started in there and then, you know, kind of kept going, got more passionate about video and obviously like social media has been um, very focused on that in the past number of years. So it it just became a, a natural evolution and, you know, I, I really enjoy creating stories at the end of the day. And that's what it's about more than anything now. That's great. And I've really enjoyed your work. And it's, it's something that as I've gotten to know you, and now I I see the little, you know, photo credits, it it always sort of warms my heart to know that there's a (laughs) connection between the the people I'm watching and uh, the person who took the photos. Is there anyone that uh, you've enjoyed working with? Uh, I, you know, I hate to ask you to put people on the spot, but is there anybody that you've particularly enjoyed working with? Because they're really easy and fun? Oh, like, obviously, everyone like the, the, Pro triathlon uh, scene, although on on the videos they might come across as very intense, everyone is generally very friendly, as I'm sure you've come to kind of realize and know. Um, but yeah. <clears throat> I've also uh, had an opportunities. I worked with a, a company called Firstborn last year, where I actually did videos in St. George of age group athletes and the stories that they had to share, and that was a lot of fun as well because. Um, you get to see this underside of, of the circuit with these stories that weren't always told, um, haven't always been told. And it throws me back to, um, you know, the Ironman coverage. I, I forget what year it was, when, but when um, John Blaze, the Blaze Man, they did a special feature on. And that was just like such a motivating and moving story to me that right now I would love the opportunity in some capacity to just tell more of those age group stories because there's so many that we just don't realize what people go through in order to get there. You know, a lot of times you just hear what the top five people do and you hear that story again and again. So I'd be more passionate about sharing the kind of like unknown um, aspects of, of people who are drawn into these endurance events now. I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, you watch the, well, it used to be NBC. I don't know. I guess it's going to be outside covering the world championships nowadays, but uh, you know, they always have the, 
I, I always call them the sob stories, but yeah. you know, the, the stories of the athlete who's overcome so much to be there and like, you know, look at what they've gone through. And uh, those are great stories. And I, I, you know, they really are entertaining and, and obviously they pull at the heartstrings for, for, for good reason. But I, I think what you're mentioning is, is very true because every single age grouper goes through so much to get to mm. the, you know, to Kona or to St. George or wherever the world championships are, because they're giving so, I mean, they're living a normal life, a job, they've got a family, they've got, I mean, I know for myself, it's a huge endeavor to, to be able to fit in the training and do everything that's necessary to get there. And those are stories that, uh, play well. And I mean, uh, Somebody was like, I don't know who, maybe it was NBC that was putting on that show, The Road to Kona, where they were following athletes yeah. that were, and I mean, those stories are compelling and because it's real life, you know, it's a, it, it's, it, it's real life, real sacrifice, real hard work, and with a great payoff at the end. So I agree with you. I think those are all good stories. And um, I love that idea that, because you're so right, you know, professional triathletes, as I have learned, are all so uh, humble and so approachable and, uh, like yourself, just affable people who have, you know, just normal people with a, an incredible ability to perform over these incredible races. Yeah. I think um, it always will just come down to the passion they can, you know, wh whatever it takes to get the best out of yourself or to overcome that individual thing. You know, I've seen uh, people get over addictions, yeah. people like create these new exciting life um opportunities for themselves through sport and it's just like it's really motivating to like obviously do that yourself take take energy for that and i think that's probably one of the reasons i've been in this sport for you know two and a half decades is like there's just always something that is compelling about it it's always different so what's the future hold for Jordan Bryden? That's a good question. <laughs> um, this season is a little bit different. I'm starting the year off with a bunch of bike racing, uh, not racing a triathlon until uh, beginning of July, which is the Canada Man Extra event. And then after that, we're going to do a... Is, is that the one? Is Canada Man the one that's in uh, Quebec? Yeah, that's in, right. Lake uh, Big the, yeah. 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 Okay. Go on. Sorry to interrupt. No, no problem. Um, and then we're doing a big Ironman focus for a couple of races into summer. Um, and then the, the plan right now is to try to get to Ultraman Worlds again, but it's a, it's a rather expensive endeavor. So currently it's not quite on the table. Um, but we'll, uh, you know, we're working towards some uh, potential funding for that particular experience <laughs> to try to uh, yeah. defend the, the world championship title there. Well, Jordan, uh, I wish you nothing but success. I look forward to working with you more in the future as part of the Life Sport team. And uh, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast today. Yeah. Jordan Bryden, uh, longtime professional triathlete, Ultraman, defending Ultraman World Champion. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll see you at that race again uh, this coming fall. Thanks again for being here on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? <laughs> no relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TriDocPodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or 
Join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.